a scripture reading from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all of the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may, may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, and if you have not already done so, please open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16 will be our primary text. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, so if you get to uh, Luke, Mark, or John, go back to the left for 2 Corinthians, back to the left. And if you're still in some prophets' names that are challenging for us to pronounce, keep going to the right. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square, and we're continuing to look at something that's popularly known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is just that, a sermon uh, in the middle uh, of the beginning of Matthew's gospel account. Matthew is one of the four gospel writers or biographers of Jesus. Um, and this sermon is particularly famous um, for us in the Christian faith because Jesus really summarizes a, a general ethic, if you will, about what it means to be kingdom people. What does it mean to be people who follow this king, who follow this Lord, um, in particular in juxtaposition with the prevailing cultural ideas or ethics or ideals? Um, and so what we looked at last week was something called the Beatitudes, the first 12 verses really of Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 5, um, delineate all these different uh, qualities or characteristics um, of Jesus' disciples. And John Stott, the English Bible teacher, sort of summarizes, if you will, the, these first two movements of the Sermon on the Mount. He looks at the, those first 12 verses as the character qualities or the characteristics of Jesus' disciples, and then he looks at this salt and light metaphor that we'll look at today uh, as how we influence or the influence of disciples uh, of Jesus. So we looked at the character of disciples of Jesus last week, and today we'll look at their influence. How is it that we're to bring about good in the world? And believe it or not, Christians are supposed to be good news to the world. And regretfully, this is so counterintuitive to many of the ways that we have learned uh, the way of Jesus, whether in our upbringing or whether today, uh, if you define uh, Christianity through the lens of Twitter, you probably don't have a really great view of Christianity. Um, and so what we have to do is go to the Scriptures and say, who does Jesus say His people are supposed to be like? What does Jesus say about those who follow Him? And that's what we are meant to emulate, not the latest fad or trend within Christendom, but ultimately what Jesus says about His people. And so we looked at the character of his followers, and now we'll look at their influence. And, and that should strike us as really odd. I, th I think, like just on the surface, it should strike us as really odd, an astonishing notion that the people with this kind of character are going to have this kind of influence. How could some poor, meek people influence such a harsh and divisive world? How could a relatively insignificant group of common Jewish people be, be tasked with changing the composition of their world? How could those who were persecuted, vehemently so, violently so, 
How could people opposed like that turn it around and actually bless those who curse them and it actually influence the culture in a meaningful way? I think there's something incredibly otherworldly about the thing that Jesus calls us to. In, in other words, it's going to take a miracle for this thing to actually work. It's going to take a miracle for what Jesus has said about the character, the way we're to inhabit the world, and the influence we're meant to have uh, on the world as followers of Jesus. Yet this is precisely what I think makes the rise of Christianity in general and the reality of the resurrection so intellectually satisfying, is because this is exactly what took place. A bunch of people who were disproportionately in number could not have possibly fathomed the kind of influence that they were about to have, not only in their world, but in everyone's world to come in every generation to come. We stand on the shoulders, if you will, of men and women who took Jesus at this word, who took Jesus at the word that actually meekness and peacemaking and hungering and thirsting for righteousness and not power and authority and ambition, that that actually could turn the world on its ear. You and I sit in these seats because people believed and took Jesus at that word, at his word. See, a group of obscure disciples did in fact change the course of history because they didn't do what is so easy for us to do, which is to return power for power or evil for evil or ambition for ambition or voting block for voting block or mean-spirited word for mean-spirited word or punk for punk or clapback for clapback. Put it however you want. The way of Jesus is so counterintuitive. And I think one of the reasons we hesitate in actually embodying it because we don't think it's going to work. We don't think it's really going to work. It's not going to bring about the change that we desire. And yet, this is exactly what happened. See, as 19th century German pastor uh, Rudolf Steer put it so well, he said, This must be our only retaliation love and truth for hatred and lies. Love and truth for hatred and lies. I think it's a brilliant summary of what Jesus is going to tell us today. See, today as we continue to explore Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be invited into this way of kingdom being, and we will over the course of this summer series. See, in a world that is simultaneously decaying and improving every single day, Jesus' disciples are called to live in such a way that arrests deterioration like salt and preserves its goodness. And in a world that's darkened by sin, disciples are invited to illuminate the reality and righteousness of God just like light. Jesus says all of this simply put, he says, you, church, are salt and you are light. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how we could be audacious enough to believe that we could do such a thing, that we could preserve goodness in our culture as salt, and we could illuminate righteousness like light. Particularly, I want to talk about how these two identities or callings are meant to live in harmony with one another. In other words, I think it can be easy to choose, and in different church traditions and different generations of church life, we have chosen one or the other, salt or light, as opposed to salt and light. I think we have a tendency to either be really salty but not very bright or really bright and not very salty. Or to borrow Steer's language that we've just quoted, we either demonstrate love at the expense of truth or we stand for truth at the neglect of love. And I think the way of Jesus calls us to hold those two things in tension. Love and truth belong together. They belong together. Here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at the love of the kingdom then we'll look at the truth of the kingdom, and then we'll look at the incarnation of the kingdom. So the love of the kingdom, the truth of the kingdom, and then the incarnation of the kingdom. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, being a church kid, grew up around a lot of Christians, a lot of religious culture, and 
traditions and ideas, I just know it's so easy for me to choose truth and the neglect of love and to kind of get caught up in my own tradition and not within the truth of your word. See, my version of truth is, is rarely the version of truth that you're communicating in your word, which is embodied in love. And I imagine my friends, my brothers and sisters, have either experienced or embodied something similar or just the opposite to pursue love without being grounded in truth. And so we pray that as we come to your word today, um, you would do what only you can. What no pithy sermon or really well-passioned uh, song could do, that you would change the composition of our souls, that you would transform our hearts. Would love today uh, make space for your truth? And would the truth be so deeply grounded in love that we would not be able to distinguish between the two? that we would be salt and light, and teach us even what this looks like to express that, not just individually, we're not in this by ourselves, but as a church. Help us as church in the square to be salt and light, to conceive what that means over the course of this series um, in all of the different ways that you've called us to be brothers and sisters in Logan Square and surrounding neighborhoods and in this city and in this world. So uh, we ask your Holy Spirit would help us shine brightly through the Scriptures uh, so that we can make sense of this living and active word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. So would you comfort us in our affliction, and would you challenge us in our comfort, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the very beginning of Matthew chapter 5, this crowd has assembled, but very quickly, uh, it may strike you as odd, but Jesus begins to move away from the crowd. He pulls away from the crowd, and then his disciples follow him, and then he sits on this hillside, which is this wonderful Hebrew or Jewish posture of teaching, of taking up authority with his disciples, but in this incredibly humble way. And so Matthew tells us that as this crowd gathers, Jesus moves away, and then his disciples sort of go with him and gather around him on this hill. So it's probably uh, not too much for us to uh, understand that what follows is Jesus' message, and Jesus' message is intended for his disciples. It's intended to help cultivate their spiritual imagination about what the world is supposed to be like for them, people who love and follow him. It's intended for those who follow Jesus. So that means that the Sermon on the Mount isn't the way for society to achieve utopia. This should not be a document that we try to force on everyone to say, this is how you're all supposed to live and be. Uh, it's not even a way for religiously minded people to live happy lives removed from the complexities of life in this world and just distance themselves because they are saved and others are not. Rather, it's this interim vision that Jesus gives his people between the already and the not yet, between his arrival and his second coming. It's this interim vision that says, says hey, I'm about to leave. I'm the king. I'm about to leave. I'm going to leave my spirit with you, and I'm going to come back one day. And between now and then, here's how I want you to live. Here's how I want you to take up space in this world. Here's how I want you to treat each other. Here's how I want you to view persecution. Here's how I want you to think about your money. Here's how I want you to understand the law. He's going to go through all of these things. So it's this interim vision that Jesus gives his people from the inauguration of the kingdom, his rule and reign, to the consummation of his kingdom. When he comes back, sets things to right, and the fullness of what we've been waiting for uh, comes, into the reality, uh, comes into reality. So it expresses then this purpose to see the realities of the kingdom and the reality of the king manifested, demonstrated on earth through these kingdom people. So that's why in a couple of weeks we're going to look that Jesus taught his disciples, among many other things, he taught them to pray this in Matthew 6 verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So if we want to know how is this miraculous work 
of heaven showing up on earth supposed to take place now on the other side of Jesus' resurrection is through you, and it's through me, right? You see how audacious this task is? That you and I and the way that we live our lives are meant to demonstrate the realities of heaven right here on earth through the power of Christ. So this sermon is meant to shape our imaginations as well, so that we would see clearly and participate with the rule and reign of Jesus from his first coming into his second. So with that context in mind, Jesus now speaks about these two identifying markers of our influence and our identity of salt and light. We'll look at the first, uh, we'll look at salt and then we'll look at light. So look again, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness uh, be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I think it's helpful to ask a couple of questions when we're coming to not just this metaphor, but both metaphors to understand what Jesus is getting at. You see, he's using uh, these two metaphors in similar ways. He's going to give us sort of an understanding of what this illustration or this word picture is about and then show what happens when that, the power of that metaphor, the power of that way of being uh, is lost and that it can be lost. So he's saying you're salt, but you can lose your saltiness. You're light, but that light can be hidden. So the first question, what does it mean that we're salt? Well, in the ancient world, it had a number of uses, and basically, um, it had two primary functions. One was a condiment, and the other was a preservative. And we still use light, or rather salt, in many different ways to add flavor, some of us more than others, right? This is why you sit down at someone's dinner table and you go, that was a little bit too much. Or you sit at someone else's and go, do you have any salt, <laughs> right? You hope that it's on the table so you can spice things up a little bit, right? It's still, it's still sort of a, a gracious way of trying to correct someone's cooking. Um, but salt in the ancient world was used for more than just that. It was used to curb decay and still is used to curb decay in many uh, societies where there is still no, or rather not a ubiquitous use of refrigeration. So salt is used to curb decay, keeping things, especially like meat, cured so it can be used and enjoyed uh, later on in a healthy and delicious way. So what's that mean for Jesus' disciples? Well, notice Jesus doesn't simply say, you are salt. What does he say? He says, you are salt of the earth. This is really an important distinction that Jesus is making. He's not just saying who you are, but he's saying where you are, right? Jesus is making a clear distinction then between disciples and the rest of the population. This is something that is really fundamental to the way that Jesus communicates his entire kingdom ethic. John Stott points out that the basic truth which lies behind these metaphors and is common to them both is that the church and the world are distinct communities. They're two different groups of people. Being salt of the earth, then, is a way of describing our relationship as followers of Jesus with those who are not. Therefore, we can extrapolate from the metaphor that Jesus is suggesting that while the world is susceptible to moral decay, his followers are meant to be like salt in the culture, curbing the effects of social deterioration for the good of everybody. Not so that we can exert our authority and say, see, we've got it right, but because it's good for everybody to flourish in a society that is not decaying and deteriorating and going into moral collapse. But even though this is who we are, see, you are the salt of the earth. You don't get to choose when you come to Christ if you won't take up that part of the job description. Jesus explains what? Your saltiness can be lost. So what's that mean? What's the meaning of this metaphor, the power of this metaphor being lost? It's important to admit that in the truest sense of the word, so I've learned, (laughs) it's almost impossible for salt to lose its saltiness. 
Chemists apparently have argued over this text, which, you know, that sounds awesome to be in a, you know, a chemistry conversation over uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But chemists have argued and understand that sodium chloride is incredibly stable. It's an incredibly stable chemical composition. In other words, salt can't really lose its saltiness. So what is Jesus actually getting at? See, especially in Jesus' culture, in his day, salt could easily get contaminated. Before things like refineries were around, making sure that no foreign objects or foreign sediment got into the salt, it could easily make its way to a household kitchen and have all kinds of other things in it that were not salt. It, it didn't taste like salt. It didn't behave like salt. In other words, salt had lost its saltiness because of other things getting into it. Not necessarily because the salt changed. The salt was still salt. There was just less of it and more other things in there. Are you with me? And so what's that mean for followers of Jesus? You can probably track with this a little bit. See, theologians talk about Christians enjoying something called uh, the perseverance of the saints. It essentially means that you are a follower of Jesus. When you come to Christ, you are sealed. You are, you are collected. You are in his family forever. Jesus even says this in, in John 10, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You are salt forever. You are saved forever. You are secure in Christ forever. Once God has rendered your salvation by grace through faith, church, isn't it good news to know you are his eternally? It doesn't matter what kind of week you had. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. Isn't it really good news to know no matter if you're feeling some kind of way, like the Lord's like, I get it. Life's hard. You're still my son. You're still my daughter. And yet, in Christ, you are this incredibly stable spiritual composition of word and spirit and grace. You are held together. However, like salt, our hearts and minds are easily contaminated with things that are of the will or of the values of the prevailing culture around us, which ultimately then what Jesus is saying renders the flavor of our lives, renders the preservation power of our lives and the church ineffective. The Apostle Paul puts a fine point on Jesus' metaphor when he wrote to the church in Ephesus. He wanted them all to be built up in Christ. He wanted to make sure that they were preserving the power that they had within that Ephesians culture in order to arrest decay and to preserve the good. And so he says this, so that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. What is he saying? Be careful that you don't adopt some prevailing cultural ideal as your own. Be careful that you don't um, shift with the winds. Be careful that you don't go, oh, that sounds right. That sounds good. That feels right. That feels good. And begin to adopt that and graft that into your own self-concept without first running it through the lens of your identity in Christ, through His Word. See, like salt, we are durable, but we can be influenced by various influences and schemes of the very world we are meant to influence. In other words, kind of ironically, the influencers can easily be influenced. And Jesus is saying, be very careful about that. See, because we are so susceptible to influence, we ought to think deeply about our relationship with the world. This is something I think all of us need to take a pause and go, what does that even mean to think about my relationship with the world? To think about how it is that I take up space as a follower of Christ in every avenue of life, whether it's work or a family life, whether it's as a child to your parents or as a parent to your children, whether it's as a college student 
or a fifth grader or a sixth grader, whoever you might, what does it mean to be a Christian in this world, someone who's following Jesus in this context? And uh, there's a classic book called Christ and Culture by Richard Niebuhr. He lays out these five different ways that the church is to sort of view the way that they engage the world. And um, five different ways that we embody, in other words, being salt in this, in this world. And I've found uh, Dr. Tim Keller's reflections on Niebuhr's work and his book, Centered Church, really helpful. So what follows is really sort of a mash together of the, these two uh, visions of what it means to take up space uh, in this world. And so I just want to kind of delineate those and then take an example and run through it to see how it might help us think about our relationship uh, with the culture, with the world, with the space that we live in. So the first of five, the first uh, Niebuhr and Keller talk about Christ against culture. In other words, one of the ways that we can engage with the world and go, it's us and them, and the way that we preserve or the way that we arrest decay is by withdrawing from evil so we're not contaminated. The other way that we can do this is Christ of culture, what Niebuhr calls, and Keller used the language of accommodation. He says, we accommodate the world and highlight the ways that uh, and places that God's goodness is present. So in other words, we just acknowledge that certain things are good, and we highlight those, but we don't try to do more than that. We go, that's good, that's really nice, and I agree with that. Another way is Christ above culture. We merge what is good with the world toward what is ultimately uh, bringing God glory. So we look at something in the world and say, that's really good, but ultimately it's pointing here to God's glory. Fourthly, uh, Christ and culture in paradox we accept culture as completely different realm. And this is where our idea of the secular and sacred divide live. And many of us grew up in that context. The world is bad out there and the world is good in here. And we're just sort of these co-parallel universes running next to each other. And lastly, they talk about Christ transforming culture. Some of us grew up in this context. We convert aspects of culture to reflect particularities of the gospel. I want to suggest to you that much of our cultural wars right now happening within the political and religious realm are adopting this fifth way, that we have to make sure every way of thinking is ultimately coming almost under a theocracy of believing and seeing the world as God has laid out in the scriptures. And so we convert every aspect of culture to reflect the kingdom. So you can see, these are all very different ways of viewing the world. And probably one of those you go, that's got to be the right one, <laughs> um, and that one's bad, you know, and sort of like, well, just for clarity, uh, no model is perfect, and maybe you hate models, and you just tuned all of that out because you're like, models are not helpful, we are people, we are not models, you know. But nevertheless, we could take a lot of time to unpack each of these, but I think, long story short, when it comes to being salt, it really is about navigating all five of these. It's learning that in certain situations, we ought to be against something. Something is not of the Lord. It is not of his character. There are other things that we go, that's really good. Even though you don't claim the name and fame of Jesus, what you're doing there is really healthy and helpful. Other times we want to see something not just be good, but be redeemed and fully reflect the kingdom or Christ's likeness. And so, being salt is about learning the different contexts and places, seeing through the lens of the scriptures and the vantage, from the vantage point of Christ and his people, and being really sharp thinkers as it comes to our culture. That's what's really hard. This is why we want to choose one of those. That's easy, because I'm, just, I'm always against culture, or I'm always for culture, or I'm always transforming culture, or I'm always uh, above culture. But ultimately, I think we have to learn to navigate this in a much more nuanced way. See, ultimately, being salt it's about loving our neighbors as ourselves. And that means that as neighbors, sometimes what my neighbor needs is a hug. Sometimes they need somebody to cry with them. 
Sometimes they need someone to help them do some work in their life or in their home or walk alongside of them with their children. Sometimes they need to know, hey, that's probably not a great way of behaving. That's hurting other people around us, and they need to be corrected. See, our neighbors need different expressions of love, and so we should be very careful to say one model is better over the rest. Let's take this idea of love, and let's run it through all five and see what we come up with. And hopefully it'll give a clarity about why it's so important for us to think in nuanced ways about what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves and what it means to be salt. See, love, uh, sometimes love is withdrawing. Sometimes it's pulling away from something or a situation, like removing ourselves from a lunch table where we can see that it is just dissenting into mean-spirited gossip, that maybe we've tried to correct, but we couldn't, and we just have to remove ourselves from it so that we will not be culpable or perhaps even be drawn in to speaking ill of one of our friends or our neighbors. Sometimes love is accommodating the weakness or the limits or the limited understanding of someone. I think like seeking, this happens often in seeking wisdom from a parent who may not be a Christian, who may not see the world exactly as you do, but they're a really good parent. And so going to them and engaging them, accommodating that they don't have it all together because neither do you and neither do I, it's a way of engaging and being salt. Sometimes love merges what is good in the world and points it to the glory of, the God, glory of God. I think this often happens in the context of education or protecting children in Chicago. That's loving. It's really loving to not condemn an entire educational system or pathway, but to engage it and be about the good that's happening in that space. Sometimes love is, uh, accepts the prevalence of the secular and sac- sacred divide. Like, it's really good that there's a separation of church and state in our country. Our country is by no means perfect, far from it, but this is a really healthy thing that actually protects church and gives religious liberty, not just to Christians, but to every religious expression. That's a really good and healthy, loving thing. Sometimes love converts what is headed for destruction to bring to life. Like many of us hesitate at, we love all the others. This one's really hard to just tell somebody about Jesus, to say, hey, I think maybe you need to hear the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Sometimes we need to tell people the story of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, not as some way of correcting and beating them over the head with it, but saying, can I tell you how the Lord has helped me, how he has transformed me, how he is working in me, what he has done for me? See, we've all got this story to tell of Jesus' victory in our lives, and that's really salty. That's really salty in a a world that's moving from one fad to the next to try to seek and find salvation. See, as the salt of the earth, our love should take on many forms, but the love that we have should always reflect Christ, not the culture. The way we engage all of these different expressions of love should always reflect Christ and not the prevailing culture. See, in each of these expressions, our saltiness is not compromised. But I think once we limit ourselves to one of these expressions or one of these models or another one, that's when we run into a problem. That's when our salt loses its saltiness. And we say, this is always the way I treat people who are a part of my community or a part of my neighborhood or a part of my world. See, when our love has nothing to do with Christ, but it only has to do with our comfort, our tradition, our preference, or our mere feelings, it's no longer good for anything. And what does Jesus say? It might as well just be trampled under people's feet. So what is he really saying? He says, because our love must always be complemented with the truth. Our love must always be complemented with the truth, or what Jesus calls light. So that's where we'll head next. Look with me at the second metaphor, verses 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, like with salt, light gives us another layer of understanding to our relationship with the world. It informs the way that we're supposed to see uh, our neighbors and people around us. And again, we got two questions. What's this metaphor about, and how is the power of this metaphor lost? So what's the metaphor of light about? Well, throughout the Bible, light is a symbol of truth. Confusion, foolishness, violence, anger, sin, all of these create a persistent casting of moral darkness over our existence. Light then is meant to penetrate this, this darkness, bringing hope, clarity, honesty, righteousness, and wisdom. And light and truth are not limited to what we say. Often I think we think about truth as what we talk about, or maybe just a clear expression of the gospel. Those are good things. But notice what Jesus is saying. Let your light shine before others, what? So that they may see your good works. Do you know that when you live in a manner with love and joy and peace and patience, all the fruit of the Spirit, the full expression of the fruit of the Spirit, it's really good news to people, and it casts light to them. See, being the light of the world is not simply about speaking, but about living in light of the truth. Again, John Stott, we are not to pretend to be other than we are, but willing for our Christianity to be visible to all. Not your doctrine, but your love, your truth, the light with the way you carry yourself. And that doesn't mean someone who carries themselves who's got it all together, a person who carries themselves who's honest. Do you know the world is not waiting for a church who has it all figured out? They're waiting for a church that is willing to be honest and humble and to admit their brokenness and weakness. They're waiting for a church that actually needs the message that they're talking about, not one who just has it, right? Not one who just knows how to talk about it. What we say and do flows then from who we are. We're followers of Jesus, and as followers of Jesus, we are meant to be a people who reveal the beauty and the holiness of Jesus. As his followers, then we're meant to be a people who point to him in the way we care for, minister, neighbor, parent, advocate, worship, do our work, go to school, play, eat, and live in this city. All of those things are supposed to smack up something otherworldly. Like, what is, I don't know what it is, but even the way they fight over the bill seems like really loving and different, right? Even the way they show up, I don't know what it is, but they're always like honest and saying, like, not just like, I'm awesome, but like, actually, I feel kind of sad today. And they're cool with that. I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like, can you even imagine? Can you even imagine a church that needed the gospel as much as they talked about it? A church that needed the strength of Jesus to be perfected in their weakness, not just in the weakness of others. I think this is what Jesus is getting at. See, you and I are meant to be a moral counterpoint to the prevailing darkness around us. Not simply because of what we say, but because of how we walk in the light, even as he is in the light, and that's what helps us to have fellowship with one another and with the Lord. How is this meaning lost? Well, as our witness can be lost in its loving, our loving influence, so too can our witness uh, conceal its veracity. See, Jesus' metaphor of light is enhanced with another picture. He says, like a city on a hill. See, being a light is about being unhidden, following Jesus then in plain sight. And in the ancient world, it would have been silly to take the one light that you had in the house and to put it under a basket, Jesus says. It would be just as impossible to hide a city that is up on a hill. So Jesus is saying, just as it is counterintuitive to hide the truth of your identity and the truth of who he is. 
So our words are meant to be seasoned with the good news. Our behavior is meant to be teeming with mercy and grace and faith and hope. In other words, I may not totally understand my neighbor, but I know how to draw near to them the way God in Christ drew near to me. I may not agree with everything that my neighbor is saying and doing, but I know how to be close to them as God in Christ has drawn close to me. I know how to be honest and humble with them as God in Christ has been honest and humble with me. I think this takes such a weight off. You know, many of us get frustrated when maybe somebody has a question that we don't have a great answer to, right, about why we believe what we believe or something like that. But I think this gives us such hope that what the world, I think many of our neighbors are asking for is, would you just be kind? Would you just be loving? Would you just show up? Would you just draw near with mercy? Because I know we all, we all need it. See, do you sound like everyone else when you're given wisdom? Do you behave like everybody else when you're taking up your space at work and in life? I know I do. The Lord just this week, this is what happens to us preachers. We get really excited about telling you all something, and the Lord is like, I don't think you believe this. Just this week, the Lord reminded me how annoyed I can get by some people, you know, by people who are annoying. Those are the people who I get annoyed by. <laughs> And so what I do when I'm annoyed with someone is I separate myself from them. Whether I think they talk too much or they talk about themselves too much or they're constantly presumptuous, you know, like me. <laughs> this week I was forced into a situation where I had to be with one of these people um, who, you know, I like to distance myself from. Don't worry, it was none of y'all. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, no, it definitely wasn't. Uh, <laughs> But it's, it's one of these people who I think I have found it very easy to create distance with, and all of a sudden, I didn't have that opportunity anymore. And the Lord completely got my attention. He said, essentially, Jason, are you treating an annoying person any differently than somebody else treats them? Who do you think you are? Moving away from someone who obviously needs love, who obviously wants someone to listen, who obviously needs a friend, these are the people you move away from? You know, God is really good at those rhetorical questions where I know I'm not supposed to answer it, I'm just supposed to listen. In other words, what was he telling me? That I was hiding my light under a basket, the basket of social comfort, the basket of moral superiority, of believing I was better than them and should take up the company with a much more healthy person, right? I was hiding my light. I wasn't living the way that the scriptures that I was preparing to preach talk about. There's a final clause that holds all of this together, our influence in check. Look how Jesus finishes in verse 16. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Perhaps the most startling way that we can live, I think, in distinction uh, with the rest of the world and the culture as light is to not be seeking our own glory, particularly in the West. This makes no sense this kind of way of living, if you will. It's, it's certainly a challenge. See, our good works, the truth of what we say and do, are going to be seen. Notice that. We're supposed to live in such a way where we are seen, and yet the complexity of living in Christ is making sure that the goodness that is visible to others doesn't go to our heads, but goes to give glory to the Heavenly Father. This is heart work, See, people are not wrong for encouraging us and thanking us or complimenting us or giving us, you know, a kind-spirited gesture. It's the work of the heart to receive the gift of an encouragement or of that was a really great thing that you did and immediately say, undeserved to God be the glory. Immediately 
God does, not undeserved to me, but to God be the glory. I've heard it said that encouragement should be enjoyed like perfume or cologne, um, that smelling it is nice and pleasant, but drinking it's lethal. It can kill you. So what we're to do, uh, especially if you wear a lot of cologne, um, <laughs> is to enjoy the encouragement of someone else, say, thank you, that was incredibly meaningful, but I only know that I have that gift, I have that ability, I have that opportunity, I had that foresight, that insight, that wisdom, because God gave it to me. That all of our good works might bring glory to God. In, in other words, our good works are incomplete until the praise for that work has pointed out the goodness of God, not simply our own goodness, that it's revealed His truth and not just revealed our goodness. This, of course, requires love. What, what's that mean? I think the only way we do that, that we give God the glory, is if we love Him more than we love ourselves. It becomes instinctive. The more I love God more than myself, it makes less and less sense to steal His glory. It makes less and less sense to take credit for something that I know that He has bestowed upon me, that He has given me as a gift, that He's given me as an opportunity, that He's given me in relationship. The more aware I am of my affection for my Father and my Father's affection for me, the less sense it makes to steal His glory and the more joy I have in bringing Him glory. See, this is precisely why love and truth belong together. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples who are supposed to embody this character, the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourning, the hungry, and the persecuted. In other words, the exact opposite kind of person who we think has power in our culture to arrest decay and to be a light that penetrates social darkness. It's the exact opposite people. We think celebrities. We think politicians. We think those who have money, these are the people who move and shake culture. But Jesus is saying, it's people like us, the poor and the meek, and the needy. Jesus is saying that he has chosen to make spiritual change happen through people like you and me. After all, this is the way that Jesus himself brought transformation, isn't it? He didn't match power for power. He didn't return evil for evil. He didn't return insult for insult, injury for injury, powering up over powering up. What did he do? He brought truth and love together, so humbly so that he died in the place of the same culture that persecuted him. See, the Apostle John summarizes the incarnation, the Word of God becoming flesh over 2,000 years ago. The, the eternal Son of God became a human being. And John writes about his arrival this way when he said, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. I hope you caught that. That Jesus is not just full of truth, he is not just full of love, he is full of grace and truth. We might say love and truth. And what was the point and power of this love and truth and harmony? John says it manifested the glory of God. You see, Jesus doesn't simply call us to be salt and light. Jesus himself embodies this quality and this characteristic of the kingdom. He embraced this first. See, Jesus is salt. Jesus is light. Don't you love that we follow a master, a Lord, a teacher who has so much integrity, he has never once asked you to do something he has not already accomplished. He's never called you to be salt and light before he said, I've already done that. I know what it's like. I know it's hard to stay salty. I know it's hard to stay bright. And that's why I'm sending you my helper who will inhabit you, who will help you, who will empower you. See, Jesus is salt. He himself is the incorruptible son of God who embodies love. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus never lost his saltiness. 
He graciously arrested decay, dignified the good of his neighbors. He constantly saw the image of God that was imprinted upon other people where others wanted to tarnish and discredit it. Jesus is light. He himself is the timeless truth that has shined in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Yet his posture of shining does not destroy, it actually heals. It's not concealed for fear or discomfort. It's put like a city on a hill so we can all enjoy. See, as salt and light, what does Jesus do? He brings kingdom renewal in the most astonishing way through self-giving, through weakness, through what first is perceived to be loss, to be death. In a world that seeks self, Jesus gave himself to bring healing. In a world that loved the darkness, Jesus conquered the darkness by stepping into it. He is love and truth. Here's how Pastor Tim Keller brings this together in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. What's he saying for us today? What's the Lord teaching us? You can't be good salt without also being light. You can't be light without being salt. Love and truth belong together. This is how we think deeply about our culture. Wherever we look, these two will be brought apart. And what the church of God says, what? Bring those back together. You can't just love people. We also have to tell them the truth. You can't just tell them the truth. You also have to love them. And we refuse to accept where one is chosen over the other because someone will be left out, because someone will be harmed, because the light will not penetrate the darkness, because the salt will not arrest decay without love and truth being brought together. So you remember how Jesus walked away from the crowd? What I love is by the end of the sermon, do you know what the crowd does? They start showing up again. They're there again. Jesus walks away from them. The disciples gather around him. He starts teaching them, and they're like, oh, that sounds interesting. That's intriguing. That's different. Love and truth together. That's what the law meant. It all, even though Jesus was talking to his disciples, other people were starting to pick up on it. I love this. They couldn't stay away. This seemingly innocuous cultural and contextual clue demonstrates the very heart of what we have been learning today. Salt and light start bringing the kingdom of heaven right here and right now on earth. So may we be a people of love and truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, left to ourselves, it's so easy to choose one or the other. It's easy to just be salt, to try to bring goodness to our world. Sometimes it's just easy to be truth, to shine brightly with the truth and light of the world is. Help us to know what it looks like in the incarnation and as the people of God to see both inhabited together. Help us to know what it means to be good neighbors. Help us to know what it means to be peacemakers. Help us to know what it looks like to be salt and light at the same time. Because our neighbors are hurting. Our neighbors need the truth just like we do, just like we are. And so may we be a church that doesn't just speak the good news, but remembers how need and need we are of it. So that the world would know the true salt and true light of the world. In Jesus Christ, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.